Yeah, I'd like to introduce our third storyteller for the evening, Miss Kanisha Foster. I enter the classroom like a freaking tornado. It started as a perfectly structured space full of equidistant desks. Now it looks like that scene in Fantasia where Mickey is the apprentice playing wizard for a day. Andre's tiny for a fifth grader, always looking out the side of his head to see what he can get away with. His teacher, Miss Ortiz, pointed him out to me on the first day. He's a non-reader, she'd said. While over her left shoulder, Andre threw a lightning-fast punch in his buddy's right deltoid, sending him into a silent scream. Don't expect him to be acting. He won't be able to memorize the lines, she continued. Miss Ortiz's hips negotiate the small aisles between the desks. She's a walking fertility goddess. And most of the kids listen to her like she's their mama. She lifts her eyebrow and the whole class goes from Fantasia to military school. She thinks of me as a clown, not sure what to do with all of my perk. I jump around the room, turning chairs upside down and asking students to find meaning in it. Andre's not shy about telling me how ridiculous I look. I tell him, I like it that way, not to worry about it. He'll get used to it. The black kids think I'm a Latina. I can tell from their half-hearted olas. The Mexican kids think I'm Puerto Rican and the Puerto Rican kids think I'm Mexican. Their heads tilt, trying to figure out the structure of my voice. It clips up at the end, as if everything is good news. And the sounds push through my nose like I have a cold. I'm an arts integrator in the room. Fusing the teacher's curriculum and my art form, which is theater, my job is to make learning and text three-dimensional for the students. Touchable. Miss Ortiz twists her long black hair around her hand and throws it behind her. I want to do a project on the civil rights movement for MLK Day. Do you think we could tie literacy goals into that? Fireworks go off inside my body. She has handed me my dream unit. She can't tell by the lightness of my skin or my thin floppy hair, but I am the daughter of a Black Panther. Plus, my Black Panther daddy married my Irish-German mother, creating a child full of cultural pride and extreme curiosity. <laughs> my bookshelves at home are packed sideways with books about the civil rights movement, the Harlem Renaissance, the history of race mixing in New Orleans, the mecca of them all. My favorite book sits alone on my coffee table. Freedom, a photographic history of the African-American struggle. I spent months looking for this book, not sure that it existed at all. I'm looking for a photographic history of the civil rights movement, I'd said to numerous bookstore clerks. <laughs> Something that has different images from the same three pictures we see every February. Um, you know, MLK at the podium, uh, Rosa Parks in her horn-rimmed glasses, and if we're getting really risky, Malcolm X in his bow tie. <laughs> I mean, not that those are bad teachers, I would say careful not to offend, I, it's just that isn't there more? I was searching for the story behind that. Books line my shelves because even as an adult, I don't understand how these three pictures changed America. Where are the rest? My father talks to me about sitting in a pew at Emmett Till's funeral and watching the Chicago PD surround the building where hours earlier they had shot and killed Fred Hampton. Images I didn't see in any of my textbooks or hear about from any of my teachers. But what I'm really curious about is why my father turns into the Incredible Hulk when people cut him off in traffic. 
or the way the N-word shoots out of his mouth when he would never let me use it, and why his eyes always look so hurt. In the classroom, the kids' bodies are recreating three pictures I've given them from the book. There's an 11-year-old Billie Holiday with corn rolls crooning in the corner. There's a group of boys no taller than five foot holding marker-drawn signs that say, I am a man. And a little girl is holding her textbook to her chest, surrounded by a frozen, jeering crowd. Instead of the starch iron top the girl from the Little Rock Nine wore, our student is wearing baby fat. A quiet boy named Marcus sits cross-legged at his desk, holding the freedom book in his lap. He pushes the book up for the class to see, cutting me off as he says, Hey y'all, look at this! Martin Luther King is small, and he's dressed like he's country! The students break out of their statues and run over to the picture, pushing each other along the way. Dang, Andre, little Billy shouts. He's as small as you are. Shut up, he shouts, cocking a fist and popping his chest real fast in little Billy's direction. Hey, Miss Ortiz jerks, whipping a write-up sheet up in the air. Andre, you want another one of these? No, he grunts. He grunts. Sorry, dang. Marcus and the others are flipping through the pictures. I'm nervous, they'll rip the pages. They stop on a picture of Jesse Jackson pointing to the sky. What's this one? Marcus asks, bouncing around in his seat. That is... I slow my words long enough to figure out how to phrase the murder of Martin Luther King for a class of fifth graders. That is a picture of... Uh, well, you guys know that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Andre makes a gun out of his fingers and points it at his buddy with a bruised arm. Clip, clip, bang, bang, you're dead, he gloats. And with the speed of the real thing, his buddy maneuvers a fake machine gun across the room. Instantaneously, the boys start dropping to the floor, dying graphic fake deaths, and the girls doubling over with laughter, clapping their hands together with screams of glee at every shot. My eyes meet Miss Ortiz in horror across the room. Her eyebrow is not working. I start waving my arms in the air. Okay, stop! I'm really trying to hide the squeaky panic in my voice. No weapons! I shout. The lifeless bodies start to jump up from the floor. Ooh, who gets to play the assassins? I want to be it. No, me, me. Do we get guns? Do we get to use guns? The boys are falling all over each other with excitement. Andre plants his hand on his buddy's face and pushes it to the ground. I'm playing the assassin! His battle cry silences the class, exhausted from what looks like pleasure. I look at Miss Ortiz and she looks at me. If we let this momentary pause last one second longer, we both know that we're gonna lose the kids for good. I jump in. Okay, wait, hold on guys, sit up, okay? Andre, get off of Paul. If, if we choose to write a scene about the day that Martin Luther King died, we are not gonna glorify the person who took his life. They're staring at me blankly. I am rethinking the word glorify. Okay, look, I'm lowering myself to the ground, slowly, like I'm diffusing a hostage situation. Violence, I say the word before I know what I'm going to say about it. Violence is hard to talk about. It's especially difficult to discuss a time when so many senseless acts were happening without making it seem like violence is the only answer, but we are going to talk about it. How are we going to talk about it, I wonder. I don't tell them about my real experience with violence. That at five years old, I'd found a gun in my father's black duffel bag, and when I'd asked him why he had it, my tiny hands shaking, he only said, to protect myself, with that sadness in his eyes again. 
and I don't tell them that the violence of that time had led my father to heroin and stealing and giving up, to unremembered moments of violence against my mother, moments that lived in his blackouts and in my memory, moments that I thought about every time I made a decision. Instead, I say, breathless on the inside and stable on the outside, Martin Luther King spoke about fighting back with love and peace, one person at a time. So I'm going to ask you, how do we fight against the thing that we hate the most without turning into it? The students aren't completely with me, but they aren't shooting fake guns either, and I take this as a good sign. I tell you what, guys, if you want to write about what happened to Martin Luther King, we can. But it's got to be about his message and not his killer. You have to try to answer that question. I make it through the class barely, and when I get home that night, I collapse into my bed with my freedom book. I'm flipping through the pictures, wondering if the people in them would be proud of how I handled today, or if they'd knock me upside my head. My cell phone rings, and it's Andre's mom. I want to talk to you about this business of Andre playing the man who killed Martin Luther King. That's my baby up there, and if you guys think my baby's going to... I cut her off with my good daughter voice. No, ma'am. Uh, first of all, I appreciate you calling. He is not playing the man who assassinated Martin Luther King. I would never allow that. My voice is sounding more like my white mother's than my black father's, and I'm wondering, is that a problem? <laughs> Telling this story in a way that honors his work is really important to me. We will not be acting out his death. I should hope not. She returns my respectful cutoff. I don't send my son to school to glorify the killer of an American hero. I could not agree more. When is the performance? A month from tomorrow at 11 in the auditorium? Good. I'm going to be there. And I better not see anything I don't like. Agreed. Agreed. I'm nodding even though she can't see me over the phone. <laughs> Looking forward to meeting it. She's gone. I'm spent. In class the next week, Marcus is shy with pride. We voted and I get to be Martin Luther King. He smiles. Andre's body is flipping around in the seat. What about me? What do I get to be? He pushes the words through his teeth. I pull out the book. Well, it's a bit early to, to assign parts, I say as I push the desk aside and start pulling the chairs in a circle. We don't even know what we're writing about yet. Yeah, we do, little Billie Holiday shouts as she grabs the shoulder of her classmates, pushing them into their seats. We're writing about MLK and how he didn't want people to fight and about how all men are created equal. True, I say, folding my legs up into my seat and opening the book, but let's fill in some gaps. I flip through this slowly so that the whole class can see the pictures. Stop me when you see something you want to know more about. Stop! The class shouts out a few pages in. I am surprised that they don't stop me as I flip past this picture of a former slave with a railroad track of scars across his back or a picture of kids their age working in a field. Instead, they call out stop at the sight of black people dressed to the nines Courses and all in the late 1800s. Marcus's lips curl into a smile, and Andre's nose smushes all over his face, trying to figure it out. What's that? Well, um, these are the students at the Tuskegee Institute in the science laboratory, and these are the Fisk University Jubilee Singers. They toured London in 1872 using spirituals to raise money for the college. Andre walks up real close to the book and turns the pages without asking, like he's searching for something. Very important. Over the course of the next few weeks, we work on putting the vocabulary of the books into our bodies. In so many of these pictures, mouths are open. There is no sound in the room, but voices are shouting, singing, screaming, preaching, and everyone is listening. 
Our frozen moments grow into scenes about a group of teenage girls being arrested after a peaceful protest and the imagined dialogue of President Roosevelt's black cabinet. The students are particularly struck by a picture of Emmett Till's mother falling to her knees at her little boy's funeral, her exhausted body being held up by those around her. They all want to be in this one. And they line up behind their frozen picture of his mother speaking the words that they may have said had they been there themselves. They decide the final moments of our show should be Martin Luther King's words and not his death. On the morning of the performance, my students swarm around me in panic. Marcus isn't here, my little Billy reports. She's the stage manager, my right hand. <laughs> what do you mean, is he sick? No, he got suspended yesterday. He hit Ricky and busted his lip. I bury my head in my hands as quickly as I raise it out again. My Martin Luther King just got suspended because he beat somebody up. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, I look at Billy. All right, well, can we get a copy of the script? Can somebody read it? We don't have to. Andre's got it memorized, she says simply. And I look past her to the stage where Andre is highlighted by the midnight blue curtains behind him. He's dressed in a three-button charcoal suit and he's doing a mic check. <laughs> Billy continues her report. The parents are being seated, we saved you a seat in the front, the actors are backstage, and the designers are in the wings. <laughs> she lifts up the word wings, proud that she's speaking theater lingo. We are starting in five. Do you want to say anything to the group? I can barely get out a yes past my smile, and she pulls me behind the closed curtain. Their faces have a glow that warms the stage. You have taken words off the page and made them live. I catch a lump in my throat and push it down, strangely careful not to show too much emotion to a group of kids who have shown me nothing but. Thank you for answering a question that I could not answer myself. As the curtain opens, Andre's mom is sitting directly behind me, clutching the seats with nerves. Their frozen bodies, filled with pride and knowledge, start as living pictures on the stage. The text grows from them as it did in our classroom, but they speak like experts now, their energy bouncing off of the walls of the auditorium. Andre steps forward in his three-piece suit, I grab the wooden arm of my seat, nervous that he hasn't had any time to rehearse. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. I swear it is like hearing Dr. King himself. Only light can do that. He raises his open palm in the air. Hate cannot drive out hate. The words rumble from his belly. Only love can do that. The audience starts rocking forward and back in their seats, putting their hands into the air, nodding. Andre breathes them in and speaks Reverend Martin Luther King's final words from the speech the night before he died. I have seen the promised land, and I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I am happy tonight. I am not worried about anything. I am not fearing any man. And with that, almost possessed with the power of his own words, he falls away from the microphone into his friend's arms, just as MLK had done that day. His mother shoots up an applause behind me, and the rest of the audience follows. Did we make you proud? I ask Andre's mom over the applause. She wipes tears from her cheeks. 
and nods. Well, it's dark in the city. I've lost my pride. The lights in the streets hide the stars from my eyes. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change is gonna come. And it's too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. Cause I don't know what's up there. Just beyond the sky. It's been a long